0: Hey guys, Josh here. Welcome back to Punching Sideways. Today is part two with Brad Chalmers, longtime Bandits player and Border Bandits men's coach. Today we talk about the value of short players, which I think Mel brought up. We jump straight into that conversation. We also talk about the worst injury that Brad has seen or been around on the court or as a coach. That's a good story, might be familiar to some of the people listening. And he also shares a really great story about the craziest crowd that he ever had the chance to play in front of. So if you know your Lauren Jackson sports stadium crowds of the modern era, this is kind of where maybe that atmosphere and everything kind of started where it really hits a crazy peak. So it's a great episode. Thank you for listening. Thanks for checking out part one for those who have. If you haven't, that's available for free at punchingsideways.com and also anywhere you get a podcast. So I won't keep you any longer here at the start. This is Brad Chalmers. Let's do this thing.
1: Actually, and that's funny you say that, it? I think there is an inherent period that we're going through now where, yeah, particularly locally, we've just got a lot of guys around that six one, six two. That's sort of got about four or five or six of those sorts of guys. So it is probably something that, that has changed a little bit. But uh, I actually recruited a guy once that was um, that was about five nine, um, an import in the twenty fourteen season. I think he was five nine, five ten, but he could. But he could play, so I wasn't always, you know, I wasn't always big on getting or, or reliant on size. It was always about for me. A lot of the time was, um, you know, skills, you know, attitude, behaviors, all those sorts of things. So, so it can be done. I mean, obviously, the games, the the games change. There's no doubt about that. That um, everyone's looking for guys, even at the point guard position, which is your, you know, your your ball-handling, playmaking position, you, they want six foot four, six foot five guys running the point, maybe even taller, particularly when you get into the really elite high levels. But, yeah, no, I've always been a big believer in, um, you know, backing in the smaller guys too. I think they can have their own, you know, their own niche. And I've certainly found that, you know, Gaz Ferguson was just about six foot. He was, a, he was an absolute gun. And even someone like Jamel Jenkins, who we had through um, one season there, he was about 5'10". He was a gun. So, you know, there was a, yeah. we've had some, a few there that have... A uh, few of the short asses have done well too.
2: So you're not <laughs> shortest. Is that the term like, yeah. of what you would be just against short people? You're not shortest.
0: Well, I can prove <laughs> just in this little story that Brad is not against short people. I remember before a game... We went to this meeting that Brad used to give up a bit of his time, and then the sponsors, halfway through the ladies' game, would get to hear the men's plan for the night. And we were playing Kilsyth, and he said, "Now there's a little blonde kid on this team that looks like a surfer, but he's a killer." And the whole room, I think they thought that you were joking for a second. That he said, "No, our whole plan is to stop this tiny little kid from Kilsyth," and I think that. At that night, I think unfortunately he had Dante guarding him, and then he had to guard Debra on defense, so he was pretty worn out. But he would have been one of the smallest players running around the league at that point, I would say, and that's Kyle Adnan, who is now in the NBL. <laughs> so,
1: yeah, funny story that one too. I remember, uh, I remember actually that night, and um, we we had a, a rule, and it was it was a bit of an unfair rule it was. Every time he came into the paint, because we played him a year previously and he'd absolutely torched us. And I remember the, the president at the time and I think my assistant coach said, um, gee, he looks like he's about 10 years old, this kid. And I said, yeah, yeah. But he, he said, um, and we were talking about the recruiting piece. Oh, he said, oh, how could we get him up here? He said, oh, and then someone quipped, oh, we should just get him a, a happy meal, you know, and that would probably keep, you know, keep him. <laughs> and uh, so that that was sort of talking to his age and just how young he was. And then anyway, the year after, which is the one Josh has talked about, I just I just had the rule in 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 our scout for the night was that every time Kyle come anywhere near the paint, we were going to hit him, you know, and, and hit him and put him to the floor. So, and, and look, it was a, it was a rough it was a rough plan, but every time he come to the paint, we'd hit him. <laughs> yeah, he hit the floor. And a and guy that's sort of 65 to 70 kilos ringing wet, you can imagine hitting the hard ground, getting hit by bigger bodies. That's going to take the, the juice out of him. And it worked. It, it worked. We, we, I think we, we handled them quite convincingly. And, uh, yeah, and Kyle didn't have a great night. But, um, you know, another one that he's gone on to have a, a really um, successful career.
0: He obviously, for a period of time, he torched a lot of teams in that league. Were you one of the few coaches – I know we're going on a tangent here, but it just stands out. Were you one of the few coaches to actually work out a plan that worked against that kid? Like as much as it sounds terrible, it actually worked. Yeah,
1: I mean, obviously, you know, that particular group, as you you know, probably had that inherent um, mentality that um, uh, when I talked about that sort of plan, they were going to be a group that was going to really buy into it. You know, they really (laughs) – like if I said, go and attack – or go and beat this kid up. They were going to go and beat that kid up. You know, there was. Uh, you yeah. know, if I said that to some groups I've had in other years, you go and say go and beat that kid up, and then no one runs near him. You know, just because of you know what <laughs> for whatever reason. But yeah. uh, no, I think I was saying it to the right guys when you had you know Dixon, McMath, and 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 Nicholas, and then you had someone like Bogut, King as well. They just they just beat that poor kid to a pulp anytime he went near the hoop. But uh, uh, it was one that I thought let's try it, and it actually it actually worked. But, but like you said, I think. You know, I've had those sorts of, you know, you've had those sorts of plans many other times and they don't come off either. So (laughs) it was just one that worked. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Yeah. (laughs) If you like us, like I like us, get onto punchingsideways.com, give us a bit of a likesy, have a bit of an exploration around and maybe buy us a coffee. I know Josh has got like a million in the glory days thing, but I want to go like find out a little bit more about you and how you got got into this sort of role that you're at. Did you have someone that you know you looked up to and you're like, oh, I'd like to do that, or where did the journey start?
1: Yeah, I think um I think every every coach that, that ever gets into it is is um as they go through playing the game, you start to just think about the the X's and O's, so this is the, the playing of the game and, and, and what works, what doesn't work. You start thinking about the systems that you're being taught. You start to think about all those little intricacies of the game and then you're also then thinking about player management, how how you're being managed by your coach, all those little things. And I think that, to me, that's you know the last two or three years of my playing career, I certainly started to think about that sort of stuff a bit more. And then from there, once I retired, for me, it was like, yeah, you know, I think, you know, I do want to, I do want to stay in the game. And I think it was something that I just certainly felt, yeah, just a bit of an inner passion to sort of say, you know what, I, I actually would like to to, to to have a go at, at coaching and, and leading a team and, and seeing how I could certainly, um, you know, influence, I think for me as well. I probably personally, there's um, a history in my family of, of elite coaching. My dad was a uh, was a was an elite coach in in the, the AFL system. He basically spent the majority of his um, uh, late twenties into his thirties as a as a playing coach in in sort of football leagues around Australia and, and coaching, and um, and he was quite successful. He was um you know winning premierships all the time, and and I sort of saw that you know pretty up close and from afar as well. Going you know you know that seems like a pretty cool thing to do. So I think it led to being something that I was just really really. Wanted to be successful at as well.
2: How did little Brad end up with a round ball in his hand as opposed to a footy then? Was there a you know, a, a fork in the road where you had to decide I'm going down the basketball route, what, a route and, and with your dad, like what was that discussion like?
1: Look, it was I, I'd done both right through and it was actually the third the third the third component of my early career was um, cricket too. So I was really into my footy as a kid, really into my cricket. So those, those were the two, winter, summer, you know, as we all did. Yeah. Um, and I was, you know, pretty handy at both. And then basketball came in sort of as a bit of a late, you know, I was off, off probably 11 or 12 when I got into that. But I did all of them right through until – I think it was about seventeen, maybe around that time where I started having to make, like most kids these days, you have to make a decision. But
0: Mm -hmm.
1: you know, I always felt like you know I was pretty, a pretty talented sportsman. You know, I love my footy, but I think at the end of the day, probably just you know I was always a leaner kid, a lighter kid. You know, I, I, you know, it wasn't something that um, inherently sort of just drew me to it all the time, but whereas the basketball, sort of just the more I did it and the more I started to spend time around it. And probably a couple of the coaches I had as a, as a kid as well. Uh, Gordon Strang was one who is um, a, a local coach. Bless his soul, he's, he's passed now. But he he was a big um, influence on me, wanting to to get better at the game and and uh, follow the game. And another one too was local guy, local legend, Carl Anderson. He was um, a big part of just... wanting me to you know follow the game a little bit more passionately and then so yeah so I got to about that 17 and I think I was I was playing I was actually playing first grade cricket for Lavington as a 16 17 year old as well and then um and I had to make a decision about you know which way I needed to go and then you know the bandit thing started to sort of get pre-season stuff started and I was starting to get involved in it and then you just had to make some decisions about your commitment levels to stuff so that's sort of where it then flowed on from there. That I, I chose hoops, and um, and the others all had to go to the wayside, and then I I'd never looked back.
2: So how did how did that go though? Like that crossroads, and you having that discussion maybe with your father. Was there pressure to sort of stay in football mm. or cricket or anything no, like that?
1: No, he was he was he was fine. I mean, my, my whole family was fine. They, to be honest, they would, you know just let me do what I needed to do. I think it was. Um, I think I hope, I hope I do the same with with my kids. I think it's just that natural thing where, you know, my dad certainly even when I started playing, yeah, he wasn't really into the game. You know, I don't think he was a passionate advocate for the game, but um, well, you know, I think he started to to watch a bit of it, and then um, and then obviously from there it's just yeah, you know, it is what it is. Um, he, he was a a supporter, and and it, you know, he doesn't live in Aubrey, he lives down in Tooralbin, so. He made the trip to a couple of finals I had as a coach, you know, and that was that was good for him to be there for, um, you know. I think he was there at the Dandenong game when we won the, the championship, which was great. He, I think, he enjoyed that. You know, he, he was obviously always supportive, and it was good to be able to chatting to him about some of the issues that I was having as a coach. You know, some of the when I talked about the money ball and you know small budget club and some of the challenges and some of the you know he'd always have you know, story on story of what he used to have to go through too. And so that was always good that he was able to give me a little bit of advice about how to deal with certain things that were maybe popping up and the challenges. And, you know, if I was you know, on a phone call having a bit of a sook about something, he'd certainly tell me to suck it up because um, we've all been there and that's just that's just part of it. And so, yeah, so I think that was always a, you know, he's always a good level of it. No, know, he certainly never ever put any pressure on me about any of that. He was happy... Happy to see me doing what I was doing.
2: What's the worst injury that you've seen? Because someone's either made a poor decision, because they've they've been rattled, or just an injury on the court, basically.
1: Yeah, there's, there's been a few. I've seen um, I've seen a, a, bro- a couple of broken wrists. They're never nice, obviously coming down from from a height. An Achilles, I've seen a, a, a snapped Achilles before. That was certainly. You know, like it's when you when you see the calf muscle just go into a like a tennis ball, and it
2: goes
1: <laughs> makes um,
2: a sound when it happens. Oh, oh.
1: Yeah, the um, the Daniel Sopokus injury was a uh, was a um, when he chipped his elbow was a was a good one where he broke the tip of his elbow off was a um, oh. a, a bit of a strange one.
0: Um, a massive flow on impact, really, for the results of that season. Not to go on a tangent. Yeah, no, well, that,
2: that's sort of where that was leading too. Like, who's yeah. just been an influencer, and then due to like something horrific, it,
0: it took the breath out of twelve hundred people.
2: Yeah, In that,
1: okay. that state. yeah, that was probably. Yeah. Um, I think it was like the second last game of the season, or something like that. Mm. Um, that that he that he um, Daniel had a, a propensity to flop. Right, so we call a flop. Mel, you know what flopping flopping is, you know, yeah. where they flail away like that soccery sort of flail, yeah, get you yeah. look like you've been shot. Yeah. <laughs> um, Daniel had this propensity to, particularly when he was shooting his three ball, was to try and kick the legs out and draw contact and try yeah. and try and get the the and one anyway. He was doing it all year and it's probably an inherent thing and he'd always fall over and do this and you know, he hit the deck. You don't want to be on the deck. I mean, the court's hard. You know? Yeah, you fall on a hard court. I always say this to guys, you don't want to be on the floor, you know. Anyway, this one time he 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 shot this three ball from the top of the key and and someone closed out and and, and look, it was no contact, but he but he flailed and tried to and anyway fell and and landed on his elbow and chipped the, the end of his elbow off and 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 the noise and and the, um, the cry that came out from his, from his mouth, was you knew straight away that it wasn't mm. great. And anyway, that was the second game before the playoff started. And um, I think we played Mount Gambier the last game of the year at home, who were our actual team we played in the championship game. And I think we'd beaten them by two. And Daniel didn't play. I think we started um, a lot of them, something like Michael Watson, or Matt DeCoyer. Anyway, we had to go right through that final series, you know, without, without Daniel, we're obviously well positioned that we had the two home finals and, and, and they said themselves we played Geelong and the first one and then played them in the, in the final because um, they won their next game and come back and played us again. So we got through those two comfortably. But then where it probably hurt us the most was, um, yeah, that, that Mount Gambier team was, was on a, about a three or four year streak there where they were in the final nearly every year and had a really deep, deep roster, sort of NBL quality roster. We just didn't have that depth. When all said and done, in the in the final, um, you know, Debbi didn't have a great game, and you had Tom Daly and Eric Burden and Matt Sutton and these guys running around. We just didn't have that depth, um, and Daniel would have been, you know, an enormous part of, of of that game. And and I think in the end, outside of a good bit of foul trouble in the, the fourth quarter, not having some focus for that for that game was the difference in us being um, having another national championship under our belt.
0: Yeah one of the one of the great quotes was that i heard one of the referees from canberra say to one of the other referees one day said god it's like a soccer crowd in here <laughs> i like yeah it is because <laughs> i don't know yeah, we well, well, yelling at someone obviously so
1: yeah i mean look i think one of the ones i remember when i was playing in, i think it was the 1999 season and um we had an american coach at that time his name was sean McShane. and it was at a time when the Kos- Kosovo were going through their um, civil war, I think it was, or something along those lines. And, um, they had a heap of refugees that, that were in Australia or that got brought to Australia, and they are out at, um, at Bonagilla. There was hundreds of them. And, and anyway, our coach at the time, someone must have approached the club or something to get these guys to come to the game. And anyway, these guys on the portable stand, they got these guys in and there was about 100 of them. So they had the whole six stands out on this night. And these guys turned up and, you know, a, a crazy atmosphere. These guys were bringing drums and horns <laughs> and they didn't have any flares, thank God, but they had drums and horns and sort of maraca-type things and this whole, this whole gig going on. And they were here for about, I think they were in, in Gilla for like two or three weeks. So I think they attended two home games. These guys thought it was like going to an NBA game, these guys. So they turning up here just thinking it was the best thing they've ever seen. You know, they're, they're, they're refugees coming in and and these guys are just going bananas. And I remember, um, you know, on the court after the game, like you couldn't hear yourself think during the game. And even after the game, the game had finished and these guys are belting drums and singing and, you know, they're coming down to you and, all you could smell was just the stench of sweat and and energy because they'd just been standing up there the whole time, just banging these things and going nuts. So, um, yeah, no, look, I think um, it's been a unique journey, and that's certainly, um, yeah, that that sort of certainly highlights it. There's no doubt.
2: Did the players lift because of that?
1: Oh yeah, hundred percent. I, I think I think I remember in, in the course of the, those couple of games that they were there. I think we we jokingly said, you know, like. How do, how do we keep these guys around? Yeah. Uh, like it was, um, you, you know, Aubrey crowds, God bless them, but like they'll sit there, and this, is, this isn't being eggy, but they'll just sit there and watch the game and give you your clap, 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 you know, yeah. when things are going well. Then when the, the big plays happen and the big energy moments happen, yeah, they'll get out of this. See, and I used to use that as, a, as a, in my coaching. like, you want these guys to start supporting you, you've got to give them something to support. You know, yeah. I used to always say this in time out, give them some energy which will give you some energy and, um, and I remember saying to these guys, "I'm like, damn, you know, these guys are unbelievable." Like we sit here most game nights, and you might have six hundred, but it's it's a it's a, a six hundred, it's a it's a quiet six hundred. You had these guys in, it went to right. We've got eight hundred in here, but it's like there's twenty thousand in here, you know, It was <laughs> like, um, and and I remember that being probably one of the loudest environments that. Whether it was constructive noise, guys, I don't think so. <laughs> it was just noise. Yeah. But, Jesus, it was, um, yeah, no, it was it was exciting. And, and, and the other thing as well was I think I took an appreciation as well. That was the other thing off topic of people. I took an appreciation for how much they enjoyed being there. Yeah. Um, because obviously given that the hardships and that were, for them to turn up and you know, they're coming down to you after the game and they're just all over you, you know, getting you to sign anything, you know, signing their their arms, their chest. Um, you know, it was just, yeah, it was pretty crazy. So, um, yeah, yeah, good times.
0: Brad Chalmers, we're talking about something that may happen, something that may be happening. Who knows? That's just speculation. But it sounds like you want to stay in coaching at some point. It'll be on the, the Sunshine Coast? If it does happen,
2: you can do whatever you like next year. You can have i give you permission to have a year off and just follow the kids around and <laughs> yeah, them.
1: And that may be what exactly what it ends up being. So I think um, no, no, it's it's hard too because some people understand the workload. Like no, those close to me I understand the workload you put into it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think from afar, yeah, sometimes it's, it's probably oh, I, you know, it's a three or four, six hour commitment a week where it probably ends up <laughs> being. Yeah, basically a big chunk of your life, you know. So, it's, yeah, it's certainly going to be um, – I've got to get around that too a little bit, trying to keep myself busy. This will be the next the next thing you try and keep yourself busy.
2: You just wait. Sometimes you have to step away for people to really appreciate the workload because <laughs> I'm just going to reference it. So not many coaches I know would turn up, I'm going to put it in football capacity, mow, mow the lawns, line the markers, wave the flat, like do all <laughs> that stuff cook all the food, and get everything ready. So hopefully that legacy is um, well on its way to being sort of filled up by multiple people as opposed to one person filling all those roles. So if that's happened, you've done well. Thank you, guys. Righto, mate.
1: This episode was edited by Dead Set Podcasting. If you want your podcast to sound this good, check out deadsetpodcasting.com forward slash services. Get the sound you're chasing.